0: I'd like to talk today about Parshat Mishpatim, but to do that, we should start first outside of Parshat uh, Mishpatim. In what I want to argue is a related passage describing the Hoshen Mishpat, the breastplate worn by the high priest that is studded with gems. As we know, there are 12 gems for the 12 tribes, 12 Shvatim of Israel, and those are arranged in rows. There are four rows. And so we have verses a bit later, but not much later in the Torah, that are describing which types of gems are in each row. And exactly how these names translate and which correspond to our modern notions of Different kinds of precious stones you could make some issue out of if you wanted, but that's not the focus of the discussion today. What I want to focus in on, which may be an abstruse place to start, but in a sense we could ignore this and just start noticing other parallels that we'll get to if we wanted to. But I think this is kind of a, a fun way of kicking things off. It's just to note that there are 12 gemstones and there are four rows, so you have four groups of three. And if you imagine a rectangular arrangement of four groups of three, then as you go through those four rows, there are gonna be two gemstones that will be entirely surrounded, right? You have three and three and three and three. And so since the rectangle is three by four, the narrower part of the rectangle is three wide, which means that there's just going to be one row in the middle, that's the kind of central row. But then in the four long direction, you're going to have two middle uh, positions and then two outer positions. And so when you intersect the middle with the middle, you're going to get these two central positions. And you can infer what they must be, assuming these things are you know, arrange a geometric order. And I, I'm reading this straight from Chumash, so if this point gets complicated by the roche bag then so be it. Again, I, I don't think it's going to really ultimately produce problems for us and what else we want to talk about in the ame itself itself. Uh, but it's notable, so when, when you go to, you know, asking the question, which rows are going to contribute to the center, it should be, second and the third row, and the second position in each of those rows. So it's So Sapir is in the second position of the second row. So that's one of them. Sapphire, perhaps, Sapir. Uh, and the third position is So is in the second position. So Sapir and Shvo are the two gems that have this property of being central in a Mishpat, which, you know, you could say, oh, why do we need to make anything out of this? And um, there are all sorts of gemstones. But at the end of the day, one can't help wondering, is the Torah going to try to make some kind of point by this, saying these are central somehow, like at the center of the Hosh Mishpat that the Kohen is wearing, that somehow uh, is going to be emphasizing something with the choice particularly of these two gemstones. And since we don't know that much about exactly what these gemstones are, or at least it's much harder to pull things out from the standpoint of geology or whatever else or mineralogy, so maybe one could try, especially you know if you're asking the question exactly what chevaux is so pure, maybe it's more obviously sapphire, although even things like that are kind of slippery uh, when you're talking about words used in Chumash. But rather than try to go that route of mineralogy, which I think is probably pretty treacherous, we can just say, well, where are these other, where what are other places where these words appear? And that's why I think Parshat Mishpatim is an interesting subject here, because there's a passage at the end of Parshat Mishpatim where the word Sapir and a word very much like Shvo, in fact, without vowels, it's, Identical and even with values, it's nearly nearly identical. The word shvu and sapir appear very close together at the end of parashat mishpatim. So let's look at that now. So we have you know several verses. We won't read all of them, but this is about this kind of vision beheld by the elite, the, the quanim, the priests, and also the elders of Israel. So Moses, Aaron, Nadav, Avihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they, you know, how do you translate this? It's troubling, you know exactly what to say, but, and they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet a kind of paved work of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for its clearness. And then we go a few more verses down Uh, and it adds And he said to the elders wait here for us until we come again to you and behold Aaron and Hur are with you, if any man have any matters let them come to him. And Moshe went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. So the glory of God, the glory of the Lord, abode upon the mount of Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moshe, from the midst of the cloud. So that's all I want to, to read explicitly. And at the outset, you just say, okay, this is a passage. It so happens there's mention of Sapir, there's mention of a word like Shvo, which is shvu. Is that really something to make something out of? And the first thing you could point out is that Sapir does not get mentioned that much. Uh, it gets mentioned in the context of Choshen Mishpat, it gets mentioned here in Chumash itself. I want to say that maybe it's not mentioned anywhere else. Um, but uh yeah, I I, I don't think there's any other mention in Fumash of Sapir itself. It's it mentioned in Yeheskel and other places, you know, in Tanakh. Um, but this is one rare place where Sapir is mentioned explicitly. And then we also have this shvu word. There are more instances of something like shvu, but not that many. Uh, and so shvu with sapir, when shvu and sapir are in the center of Mishpat, it's kind of saying to you, maybe look at this passage and ask yourself, why are these things appearing here together? And what is this telling you? So again, that whole preface you could discard and you could just say, like to understand this passage in Parshat Mishpatim better when Moshe is going up uh and really just by noticing this particular verse and trying to say like well what can we make out of this what does it mean there really is another passage that it connects to that we could just get from direct textual comparison um that's in Parshat Bereshit. and that is at the moment of aqidat hitrak so First of all, just recapping this moment where Moshe is going to be going up and receiving the Torah. This is in Har Sinai. And he's saying to the elders, So he says to the elders, Wait here for us until we come again. And he mentions, our one and four are there to answer questions and to lead them. So now we take the idea of Shvu. Le, you know uh, sitting here with some group uh until we return ad nashuv aleichem, to you all where did we hear that before there is another place where shuv appears not that many other places as i mentioned but some uh and and the first is in Yitzhak, where Avram has approached Har Moriah, a different mountain, actually. So it's also the other holy mountain. Instead of Sinai, it's the Temple Mount. So it's Wayumar Avraham el Ne'arao Shvu Lachem Po Eim Hachamor Shvu Lachem Po Eim Hachamor Vani Vehana Ar Nercha Ad Kro Alechem. So again. Shvu lachem instead of shvu lanu. It's on a mountain. And it says, We will go up or we'll go over there. With nashuva alechem is like ad nashuv alechem. So there's a number of different direct textual parallels. Here it's a little different. Translate, I mean, there are details that are different. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the chamor, with the uh, donkey, and I will, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come back to you. So, this is a very uh, significant moment in the life of Avram. This is the turning point of the Akidah, where Avram, well, I don't know, there are multiple turning points, but this is the moment where Avram separates from others that were traveling with them. The Midrash has it that it's uh, Eliezer, Dameshek, and Ishmael, but that doesn't have to be the case. Uh, in any case, it's others who have come with him and Yitzhak, but now he and Yitzchak have to go up alone together, right? That they somehow are going, they're separating from other people and going on this unique mission of theirs up to the Temple Mount where Yitzchak is to be bound and then there's going to be the whole episode there with the substitution of the sacrifice and everything. But I think at the, bare, the, the basic level, we could just say that the Torah is asking us to compare these two moments where Moshe is going up the mountain and going up with Aaron, um, that there's some separation. In this case, you know, oh, uh, sorry, he's not going up with Aaron. Uh, let's get back to, so just to recap it again. Um, so we're again in Sefer Shemot. Well, has Kenim Amar Shvu l'nu b'ze Ad Asher Nashuv Alechem, uHini Aaron veChor imachem mi Baal dvarei Migash Alechem. So it's Oyakam Moshe uYehoshua Mishardo uYal Moshe el Har So it's Moses and Yoshua, his servant or his student, are going up the mountain. So again, it's two people, and it's. Not just two people, but it's Moshe and the one who in the next generation will take the baton from him, right? Yoshua leads the people after Moshe. So the same way that Yitzchak takes the baton from Avraham, Moshe gives the baton to Joshua, uh, And they're going up and they're saying to this greater, more sort of, or less exceptional group, stay here and wait for us. And and we're meant to somehow understand one of these passages in light of the other. And obviously that can always work both ways. Uh, it's maybe easier to understand what's happening on its own in the case of Abraham Abinu, right? Abraham is going up the mountain to serve Hashem with Yitzchap, who is the next generation. So it's this this emblem of Intergenerational continuity in Avodat Hashem, the beginning of the Israelite nation as a familial group that has a religious commitment and a law, and then it's all wrapped together into nationhood dedicated to service of Hashem. And that requires a separation uh, from other people, right? That's the, the notion of Am Yisrael as a nation that dwells alone. And in a way, the sort of perhaps the, the 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 tinge of sadness in that, because there is at some level a, a desire to recognize our common bond with humanity that the Torah begins with, right? But in order to serve Hashem properly, there has to be this separation. But there's this key completion of that message, which is not just shwulakempo na arku nishtahawe. Like, stay here and we're going to go up and worship. You stay here at the bottom of the mountain. You don't matter. We matter. We're going up to be with Hashem. It's, when Yishtach will we'll worship, we'll bow down. When and we will return to you. That the point is, the model that's advocated by the Torah is that you establish this Mamlechet Kohanim, this holy nation, that begins with Avraham and Yitzchak, and that they develop a relationship with Echados Baruchu by serving him on his mountain, and then they come back. They go back to the people that had stayed at the bottom of the mountain because the whole point of that is actually connect all of humanity to connect all of humanity to Hashem, and that's achieved through this separation through this priestly role that Am Yisrael are called to have by the Torah, but that's that's being delineated fairly directly. Uh, in the this representation that we see with um, and, and and the only curious detail maybe is here with the donkey stay here with the donkey, which seems degrading maybe uh, but I think we can make something better out of that uh it's it's a it's an unclear detail, although Aaron, a, a detail of unclear significance at first. Although I will say that it does help clinch our sense that we've hit on something that we need to understand. Why? Because if we look at another instance of the word shru, in fact, the next one that comes uh, in Sefer it appears at the time when Yaakov Avinu is having this kind of ambassadorial conversation with the city of Shechem and the king of Shechem and the prince of Shechem, because there's been this episode with Dina, and now people are trying to make peace, which it don't it won't ultimately end that way, because Shimon and Levi are are, are going to come and destroy the city of Shechem and sack it. But what the people of Shechem are saying, and the king of Shechem are saying is we <laughs> ba. So you should live with us and the land will be before you live and trade in it and get possessions in it. So the people of Shem are saying, look, it's in your economic interest to just let bygones be bygones, marry Dina into the the royalty here, become part of our nation. We'll all get rich together by trading with each other and benefiting from each other's knowledge and talents. This argument for, in a sense, uh, the opposite of that kind of separation, right? And isn't it interesting What is the name of the king of Shechem who's making this case to Yaakov for unification? Uh, So it begins with the king, Hamor, whose name means donkey, Saying, the soul of my son Shem longs for your daughter, I beg you to give her, for, give him her, to, give her to him for a wife. And he proposes we all intermarry and all of that. So this sort of a universal brotherhood of man and the economic benefit of that even explicitly being emphasized, this kind of globalization that's being argued for here, uh, is being articulated by a man whose name is Hamor, is named Donkey. Uh, and that I think is a much better explication of why it is that Avram is leaving his Naarim, his youths or whatever, who are traveling and helping them um, with, or maybe you could say his students, his disciples, whatever else, is leaving them at the bottom of the mountain ima hamor, with a donkey. It's not, oh, well, you're like an animal, you know, or it, it, it needn't it need, you know, only evoke that. Uh, what it's saying is, for one thing, you're like king hamor you're like people like a nation that's going to want to just have us all be part of one thing that's all the same and to argue for the benefits of that because of all the peace that can result from intermarriage because of all of the economic gain that can come from trade etc and there's something to be said for that it's not an unreasonable argument Uh, But, and I I think you could even say, okay, now it's clearer why we are connecting this with the image of or with the donkey, because, you know, in a world today where we don't make as much use of donkeys in this way, we might forget this, but the donkey was the emblem of, let's say, material prosperity through work and trade, right? That a donkey can pull a plow for you, a donkey can carry a burden from one place to another so you can grow your goods in one place and harvest them and carry them into other places sell them the donkey is the basis for an economy that extends over space and connects people uh and more generally i think can be thought of as as representing the possibility of ranging over the earth and transporting oneself and conquering the earth and you know, having a kind of material success in the world. So when Avram is saying, he's saying, look, stay here with material opportunity, with globalization, with the universal brotherhood of man, dot, 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 and we'll come back to you. We're interested in that. That's not... Something that we merely intend to eschew and reject, as many different kinds of pietistic, ascetic, spiritual seekers have done throughout time with various brands associated with them, right? One way of relating to all of that is to say, well, that's the material world. We're going to go up and be with the creator of the world. We're going to be with the spiritual essence of the universe, and we don't need material we don't need wealth we don't need prosperity we don't need other people we don't need that connection we just need to connect with god and then if that were the case it would make sense for one man to go up the mountain indeed. and and why why do two people need to do it but that's not what i'm is about i is about two people are going up because they're going to be a nation and so it's already about sharing in a community that's based in this world you know, that's going to be a nation that has that common language and that common experience of connection with Hashem. But there's also this when Alechem, right? That ultimately this is about, from Zion, Torah is going to go out, and the word of Hashem from Jerusalem. That we have, ultimately have an outward, you know, an outward facing approach to things where. We have to perfect our relationship with Akadosh Baruch so that it can enable a better relationship between all of humankind and Akadosh Baruch. And you know, we'll we'll get to this again in a different way, but that's another reason why it's probably a donkey, because as many people are aware, there's a midrash, a famous midrash about Biat Mashiach, the coming of the anointed king of Israel who will build the temple and usher in an era of sovereignty in the land that will lead to a new possibility of relationship to humanity as a nation of priests bearing the message of Torah and connection with Hashem, that there are two opinions about how Mashiach will come. Uh, one is al-hamor on a donkey and the other is al on clouds of glory. And usually we are told that statement about Mashiach is derived from a passage in Zechariah Hanavi, in the the, the Prophet Zechariah, um, where it seems more explicitly like there's two different kinds of references, maybe just some kind of Messianic figure, and there's mention of someone riding on a donkey. And even then, you know, the interpretation we already been giving to a donkey, you can give there too, and you can say, look, at some level, Piat Mashiach has to come from spirituality, whatever you want to call that, or from something... Uh, heavenly, uh, about connection with Hashem, about the ideas, about the the laws, about the concepts, about uh, things that are otherworldly, things that are miraculous, etc. But also, there's, you know, Mashiach will come, Al Hamor will come slowly but ploddingly on a donkey, in the, rooted in the material world, rooted in the necessity of material strength and power and success to carry into being the things that have to happen. Right? That if you're going to build a temple, you're going to need to drag some heavy things up a hill in order to build with them. And maybe you'll need donkeys for that. Or even if you use mechanized equipment instead, the donkey represents the idea that these things are not going to happen unless you actually have the means to do them. And having means means being sort of connected to the world and the economy and that which material requires of you. So that's an aspect of Mashiach that, you know, we can get from this this comment of Chazal, of the sages, um, about how we're going to bring about the kingdom of Hashem on earth through the kingdom of a, a Judaic leader who will be serious about getting the people to serve Hashem according to his Torah in the land and on his mountain and all of that. So as I said, we have yeah. heard previously um, that that midrash, that famous midrash about Mashiach, is about Zechariah Navi. But I think a remarkable thing about Chumash, about the five books of Moses, is that even the rest of Tanakh, at some level, even the rest of the of the Hebrew Bible, at some level, you might almost say that. Prophets are commenting on five books of Moses and explicating things that are already apparent there. Uh, And we can see that in more than one way, now in this comparison that we're making to Parashat Mishpatim. Because in this Shavu moment of Parashat Mishpatim, now let's go back there again. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come again. And behold, Aaron and Hor are here with you. And if any man may have matters, let him come to them. And then it says, and Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, etc. So we don't have a donkey here, right? But we just proved that this is a donkey moment, right? Let's, you know, sit here until we return to you, uh, that moment is evoking the Hamor moment of the Binding of Isaac. So there's no Hamor in the text here itself, but it's clear as day that this moment is referenced to when Avraham says it. So then, right afterwards, the next two verses are The cloud covers the mount, and the glory of Hashem dwelt upon the mount. So that's the clouds of glory. It's the other half of that Midrash. So the the Midrash from Chazal that's saying, Mashiach is going to come either on a donkey or in clouds of glory, that's this moment. And then you might say, well, but where's Mashiach? Right? How are we supposed to get that here? Um, And that's the remaining details that we have just staring us in the face. Because it says, okay, um, it's, asher you lechem, wehine aharon wehor imachem. Right? You're going you're gonna to wait until we come back to you. And here, Aaron and Hor are here with you. So Aaron and Hor, who are they? He's the high priest. And Hor is in this line of... Uh, the, the tribe of Judah that is going to produce Betzal. Betzal is the craftsman who creates the Mishkan, right? He creates the physical abode for Hashem in this world that's going to be on the other mountain that Abram was going up. And Hor is going to do that so that Aaron's sons, the Kohanim, the priests, can serve Hashem on that mountain. So Aron and Chor together, we've talked about other things they they represent, but Aron and Chor together uh, represent the temple. They represent the Mikdash. They represent Harabait, Harmulga, where Avram does his first, you know, stay here with the donkey moment. And to the extent that they do, they, of course, also represent Mashiach. Because What makes Mashiach Mashiach, other than the fact that the word Mashiach in Torah most frequently appears in conjunction with the sons of Aaron, because they are anointed priests, and Mashiach just means anointed, but also the idea of a Melech Mashiach, an anointed king, first of all, who is from Judah, from the tribe of Judah, the, the tribe of the Davidic line, second of all, The building of the temple itself is the essence of what makes David this eternal dynasty, right? David and Shlomo become uh, the the eternal dynasty for Malchud, for kingship in Israel, because they're the ones, unlike Shaul who came before, who prepared to build the temple and who build the temple. And that's inextricable or inseparable from what makes David's uh, dynasty, an eternal relationship with Hashem that, that is promised to last forever. And so to the degree that we're referencing the temple here, the Mikdash, we're also referencing the idea of Mashiach. And in fact, you can make that even more explicit if you want. Now, this, this thing I was saying before about... um. The other books of the Hebrew Bible actually already kind of being midrashic in their way, or like their preparations for the midrashim of Chazal, that they are filling in blanks that make it easier for Chazal to make the right midrash. Because what do we know from midrash? I mean, sorry, what do we know from Divrei Yamim? From elsewhere in Tanakh, we know that Hor was Mm -hmm. the son. Of Ephrat. Uh, so it says in Divray Yamim, So in Divrei Yamim, we get that Hor's mother is Ephrat and Kalev is his father. So other things we could make out of that and have at other times, but what I want to emphasize here is the point that Ephrat. What's the name of Ephrath have to do with anything? Ephrath is the place in the Torah itself where Yaakov buries Rachel when she dies, giving birth to Benjamin, and it says that's on the way to Bethlehem, to the place that David will come from. Right. Once you mention Bethlehem, you're talking about the Davidic dynasty. You're talking about Hamel Hamashiach. <laughs> So to the degree that you're talking about HaMelech HaMashiach you are um, a, doing so with mention of Hor. if it's read in light of this other comet in Divrei Yamim. Like without the comment in Divrei Yamim you have to get the idea of Mashiach directly from just well this is about the temple right? So to the degree that it's about the temple it's about the Messianic king. But once you have your meme, now it's saying, well, okay, from who we get Ephrat, from Ephrat we get Belechem. And, and so, you know, that cements it even more strongly that we're, we're really talking about um, David, Shlomo, and all of that, you know, the, the Davidic line. And remember, <laughs> this passage, as we have already established in the Torah itself, is the passage about the donkey and the clouds of glory. So we've, we've reconstructed this Midrash from Hazal about Mashiach coming on a donkey in clouds of glory. Um, and, and it all, in, in a sense, is living in this, this sequence of several verses at the end of Parashat Mishpatim. Uh, and now, you know, the question is going back to that passage, going back to that shvu. Uh, going back to the uh, in Parashat in Mishpatim, like, stay here at the bottom of the mountain uh, while I go up, or while we go up, while Yeshua and and Moshe go up. What are we supposed to make of this? I mean... We, we understand maybe what Chazal was saying about the Midrash. And you can make your own analysis of that Midrash like we already did we can say, okay, so if we're going to rebuild the temple, we need to have donkeys. Like we need to have material strength. Uh, we also need to have connection to Hashem. Uh, we need to have the cloud of glory, uh, but uh, what's, what greater understanding do we get from seeing how this is laid out in the text of the Torah itself? Are there more connections we can draw? Are there clearer explications we can make of, of what the point of you know, the Midrash might be making now that it's saying, look, read read this through this passage in Peshach Mishpatim. It's really about Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. It's about Moshe and Yoshua going up the mountain. That it's about receiving the Torah from Hashem when you know, the clouds of glory are covering the mountain. And with some sense of you know, who's at the bottom of the mountain and what does that mean? So, I think there are a few interesting points to make here. One, which after several other shiorin that we've done might be the most obvious, is that this has a clear connection to the battle with Amalek, right? Because Amalek is fought by Yehoshua, who's at the bottom of the mountain, well, or at the bottom of the hill, while Moshe and Aaron and Hur are up on top of the hill. And Aaron and Hur are helping Moshe hold his staff aloft. And Yeshua is successful in battle with Amalek when the staff is held aloft. And so Moshe needs Aaron and Hur to help him. So it's not the same, but it's so much the same that we have to see these things in light of each other and say, Okay, this is another perspective on that battle with Amalek. Or from another perspective, I'm using it another perspective um, on Matan Torah and the and building of the Temple and, and reading it in connection with the battle with Amalek. So, uh, uh, obviously, practically speaking, it's always relevant to wonder, uh, how do we defeat Amalek? Because right now we're in a war with Amalek, uh, and 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 the point there would be that yes, it's about the staff and it's about Avon the Khur and you know everything that we've said already. Uh, focusing on that passage earlier on about the battle with Amalek. But here what we're seeing is that it's it's also about specifically the idea of intergenerational continuity in the transmission of the Torah that's received at Sinai, so Moshe to Yahushua. It's also about the transition from Moshe to Yahushua being about the transition from diaspora or desert wandering to Conquest and sovereignty over the land with Yahushua. And it's also about the... What's so interesting is that in this version, it's Aaron and Hor who are staying down at the bottom of the mountain with the donkey, so to speak. And and why is that? It's because the point is that from the perspective of this passage, Aaron and Hor are the practical, material physical plant of how you defeat Amalek, uh, because they are the practical, material, physical plant of how you serve Hashem in the land, uh, specifically having to do with the Avodah that you do in Harabit. that there's something essential about taking hold of the land, taking hold of Yerushalayim, taking hold of Harabait, and building a temple there so that it be, can become this complex symbolic focal point of national identity, that ultimately that is going to be what gives us the strength to defeat or win over, you know, Amalek, whatever way you want the Amalekite idea to disappear. Um, and it's probably going to be a mixture of both. But then we we have to at one level, see Aaron and Horus staying at the bottom of the mountain because there's a realism about that. Like that you can't just go up the mountain and stay in the clouds and have amazing ideas and commune with Hashem in this kind of uh, otherworldly level of understanding. It's also the case at the end of the day that you need to have something that's for everyone, that's here on earth with a donkey, so to speak, that ultimately produces a set of physical events here in the land on one particular hill that people can participate in and experience and relate to in different ways. And then, by the way, is also the way you invite the rest of humanity in, right? So this is another reason why Aaron and Hor are being connected with the people who are being excluded by Abraham when he needs go up the mountain. Because they, he says, we're going to return to you. This is about, ultimately, as we said at the beginning, talking to all of humanity. So how do we talk to all of humanity? We can't talk to all of humanity, really, unless we have the temple. Because the temple is this place for, really, in fact, all of mankind to address themselves to Hashem, if they want to. And that's something we learn elsewhere from our Arnebim. That... This is a Beit Tfilah for all nations. And if we are going to reconnect, and we're going to go up the mountain and come back down and bring a message as a nation, then the means of doing that are our own and Hor, And in another sense, the means of doing that are an approach to Judaic sovereignty in the land of Israel that supports the construction and flourishing and functioning of the temple. In other words, the you know Betalachmi, the Bethlehemite. We need the Davidic idea to return to our politics. We need the idea of the centrality of a Judaic temple on Har Moriah to our national identity. Um, in order for us to fulfill our purpose uh, as understood by the Torah uh, in relationship to the rest of humanity, which is to make it possible for the whole world to learn about Hashem and about His Torah um, uh, through the example that we set and and through the uh, lessons that we are only capable of teaching once we have sufficiently developed and corrected uh, our own understanding of sovereignty and identity in our own land uh, and with our own particular relationship uh, with HaKadosh Baruch We would like to encourage our viewers to share these videos with friends and send in your responses. If you would like to obtain Birkon Nusach Eretz Israel, or invite the Rabbi for a speaking engagement. Please email us at office at machonchilo.org.